You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. The podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, my sexy disabled lovers. It's almost Valentine's Day and my friends adamandeve.com want me to let you know that they have some really cool Valentine's Day offers for you. And so I want to let you know all about it right now. Get comfy, cozy, and crippled. Open your box of chocolates and let me tell you all about it. Free stuff is the best stuff. But free stuff that will ignite your sexy disabled Valentine's Day is even better. Check this out. When you go to adamandeve.com and select almost any one item, you'll get it at 50% off. That's amazing by itself, but it gets even more amazing because they load on the free stuff. When you enter my exclusive code, only for Disability After Dark listeners, at checkout, which is DarkPod, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, not only do you get the one item at 50% off, you'll also get 10 free gifts for your Valentine's Day pleasure. And let me tell you all about them. First, you'll get six free movies that you can download for your viewing pleasure. You can watch them with a sexy partner on Valentine's Day, or you can eat that box of chocolates and watch them by yourself if you want to. But six free movies, that's amazing. I love free movies, that's great. Go ahead and get that. You will also get a free mystery pack that includes an item for penis havers and an item for vulva havers, and it's something I know you'll definitely enjoy. Plus, with all this, you get free shipping, and that's pretty awesome for Valentine's Day. Who doesn't want a free Valentine's Day gift? That's pretty cool, right? So again, if you want to get all this free Valentine's Day stuff, make sure at checkout you use the code DARKPOD. So you go to adamandeve.com and you use the, the code DARKPOD. Again, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you will get all of those things. One item for 50% off, the movies, the mystery pack, all that stuff for Valentine's Day, which you can use with a partner or yourself on Valentine's Day. Get that stuff now. D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, darkpod at checkout at adamandeve.com. Take advantage of it, listeners, right now. Happy Valentine's Day! Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised.
Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled dick smith, your number one queer cripple. I am your disability awareness consultant. All of those things, and I am so excited for this episode. So get comfy, cozy, and crippled, whatever that means for you, and let's get this show started. If you're listening to the episode on Wednesday instead of Thursday, that means you're part of our Patreon peeps who support the show at $1 or $5 a month, where you'll also get the show ad-free. So if you are if you didn't hear the ads for Come As You Are or the Adam and Eve Superstore today, that means you are a Patreon supporter. And if you want to hear the show completely ad-free, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge $1 or $5 a month to keep the show going. At both levels, you'll get a weird, awkward shout-out from me and a thank you on the air, but also at the $5 level, you can build a show with me, and we can build a show around anything regarding disability, and that will be great. So if you want a pledge to the show, you can do that. If also you want to make a one-time donation to the show and you can't pledge monthly, that's cool. You can also pledge to my PayPal, paypal.me slash and I will use that money to fund the show, and I really appreciate all your support. But now, let's get to the show. I don't know if I ever explained this on the, on the show before, but I'm obsessed with Disney fairy tales. I love Disney so much, and I particularly love stories about prince and princesses and, like, old-timey stuff like that. I love those kind of stories. They've always kind of spoken to me as a disabled kid. I don't know why. I love I loved stories like Beauty and the Beast. I love stories like... like like Sleeping Beauty, I love stories like Ariel, I loved Ariel, you know, Little Mermaid, all those stories were really important to me as a kid, and Little Mermaid is a story that I've always kind of felt a closeness with, because if you're disabled and you watch those stories, you realize that Ariel has a disability, Ariel can't walk, Ariel also couldn't speak through half of the film, which also means that she was hard of hearing or deaf. And so I've loved those films since I was a kid. I also loved stories like um, The Lion King. Scar is somebody who could be considered disabled uh, because of the way he looks. There, there are so many parallels to disability in Disney, and I just, I've loved those stories since I was young, and I don't, know, I don't know if I mentioned that. The reason I bring it up is because my guest today on the show is a new friend of mine, Amanda LaDuc, and we started following each other on Twitter, and then one day, I got an email from her that was like, hey, I'm writing a new book, and I, I would love to use some of your work in my book, and I was like, that's cool, amazing, I'd love to be a part of that, sure, what kind of, what kind of stuff do you want? And we started talking and she explained to me what she wanted to use and she's like I'm writing this book called Disfigured about fairy tales disability and making space and I want to talk about fairy tales and disability and I was like that's wow that's amazing and that's really cool and I've never heard a book like this that links disability and fairy tales together so I asked my friend Amanda LaDuc author to come in the studio today and, or for this episode, not today, I recorded it before, but for this episode, to come into the studio, my house, 
and talk to me about this book and talk to me about fairy tales, disability, her experiences being a young disabled person with cerebral palsy and some of the things she went through as a disabled kid and how fairy tales affected her. We talk about how fairy tales affected me as a young kid. We talk about how fairy tales affected the way we saw ourselves and what fairy tales, modern fairy tales, can do to better include disabled bodies in there, um, how ableism is perpetuated through fairy tales. We do a lot of this discussion in this episode and it was really nice to chat with her and sit down with her and have this talk. Um, her new book, Disfigured, comes out really soon. Uh, I'm really excited to have been a part of it, to have asked to have my work be in the book. I cannot wait for you to read this book. It's amazing, it's important, it's iconic for what it is, and I'm excited to have been able to sit down with Amanda on the show to talk about her new book about disability, fairy tales, and making space called Disfigured. We're going to have our chat right now on a brand new episode of Disability After Dark. Amanda LaDuke, hello. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for stopping in. We're doing another in-person studio thing, so Amanda is sitting here with me in my studio in Toronto, so we're passing the mic back and forth again to each other, which is a fun game me and my in-person guests play. Uh, so we're going to do that today, so if you hear the mic squeaking, that's why. So, Amanda, I'm so excited to have you here because of this new book you've written, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, can you introduce yourself to us? Absolutely. So my name is Amanda LaDuke, and I am a writer uh, based in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, I write fiction and nonfiction, and my latest book, out now with Coach House Books, is Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. Um, and I'm very pleased to be here today, again. Repeat. I am, I am so excited about this, this book. I can't even tell you. When I... When I when you emailed me a few months ago to, to, to if you could use some of my work in the book, I was like, oh, that's and when you explained to me what the book was about, I literally was like, that's yes, take all my stuff, whatever you want, like sure, because it's such an interesting book, which we'll get to in just a minute. But the first question I have for you, Amanda, is can you, well, firstly, do you identify as a disabled person, and if so. How does your disability affect your day-to-day life? Absolutely. So I do identify as a disabled person. I have cerebral palsy. Um, and the way that it affects me, it's relatively mild. So I walk with a slight limp, um, which shows up sometimes more if I'm tired. Um, and as I get older, I'm 37 now. And as I age, I've been finding that I've been in increasingly experiencing things like more chronic pain and stiffness and things like that. Um, so I've been coming, becoming more aware of my disability as I grow older. When I was young, it was marked I had surgery to remove a cyst in my brain when I was four and then a surgery a year later to correct quote-unquote correct um, the curve and the turning in of the toes on my right foot Uh, so I had a cast and used a wheelchair for a while when I was in school Um, and then I was able eventually um, to use crutches and then eventually to walk independently once again with the help of physical therapy Um, so I 
basically moved more or less into an able-bodied life again. Uh, but where my life was different was that my gait was quite distinctive in many ways. And uh, I encountered a lot of bullying in school as a result of this. And it wasn't really something that I thought about deeply once I left elementary school. I just sort of left it behind and put it all behind me and thought it's over with it's done and it wasn't until I became an adult really in my early 30s that I started to reckon with what that meant for me and my identity as a disabled woman and how that had shaped the person that I became and the person that I am today there's a whole lot to unpack there I firstly we both have CP yay so Woo! yay we're part of the, the CP club yay um, and I also wanted, I want to talk also about like how, you know, we're taught as people with CP that it's a non-degenerative disease, that it's not going to get any worse or better. It just, it is what it is when you get it. And so you were talking about how, you know, you've noticed as, as you age, chronic pain gets different things kind of flare up because of it. And I felt that too as I get older, like my body's changing a little bit differently. And so I, I remember feeling really betrayed by my cerebral palsy body for a while. Because I was like, oh, they told me when I was like 16 that it would be this way. And now it's not. And oh my, like, I didn't know how to feel about that. How did you, have you felt that way with your body as things change? I have for sure. I think um, I haven't felt it to quite the same extent and I want to be open and transparent about that is that I have you know in my life as a disabled woman experienced a lot of privilege a lot of able-bodied privilege because I've been able to sort of move through the world and in, in that um, able-bodied way uh, and even now you know with these changes that are coming the chronic pain you know you know my right foot gives me a lot of trouble and is always aching and hard so it makes things that you know um, alleviate the chronic pain like exercise and stretching that actually has become a lot more difficult for me in the last couple of years uh, and I'm not I wouldn't say that I'm angry at this point um, in fact I, I, I would say and this is probably just a temporary state of things, but it, I find it quite interesting and quite fascinating. I think because part of the journey of writing this particular book has been discovering my own life and identity as a disabled woman and how that factors into the stories that I've been telling about myself and the world that I live in since I was very small. So in that sense, you know, these new developments with my disability have become another aspect of that story and in that way I find it really interesting however obviously as you know I get older and these things progress and the chronic pain progresses and it becomes you know difficult um, to do things that I maybe had not encountered difficulty doing in the past I will probably feel differently about it um, I'm, I'm sure that there is some anger that will come for right now I'm, I'm just I think continually learning anew how to live in the body that I have and how to radically accept the body that I have, which has been really important that's for me big, to learn. That's a big, that's a, that's a big, that's a tall order for anybody, whether you, you have disabilities or not, how to live in your body and be happy. And I, you know, as a disabled man who uses a wheelchair, I have, I'm learning to be happy. And one of the things that I've discovered just this year that's made me really happy is to give people totally off topic of what 
of, ne of necessarily what we're talking about today, but to give non-disabled people kind of kind of the keys to unlock their own ableism and the keys to dismantle their own discomfort around disability. And so learning to also let go of my own anger towards my own, towards my body has been really something that I'm just starting to figure out for myself. Yeah, and I think the thing that has been hard for me is, is recognizing that there is no manual, there's no how-to, and, you know, that question of how privilege intersects with disability is one that we always have to be asking. I think particularly for myself as a white woman, it's something that I continually have to think about because my, my impulse is I'm not a very conflict ready person um, so I tend to avoid it so anger is not usually my go-to but I think in the disability community especially um, there's a lot of really justified really righteous anger um, that people are right to have and that question for me is how you know to move in that space in a way that helps to contribute to those conversations and helps to fuel that anger and, and what can I contribute in a way that's productive to the conversation, acknowledging the privilege that I have and, and how best to use that in ways that can help others if that, you know, is, um, is, is a, a, a gift that I can have and, and do and make. Yeah, I think that um, just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, I think the community has every right to be angry about a lot of stuff. Ableism is a real thing and it really hurts and it, it's hurt both of us in the past and, and we'll talk about like y how it's hurt you in the book and how it, like they kn people know from listening to me talk that it's hurt me a lot. But like I think we have to move not past the anger but we have to find ways to mobilize the anger. How do we turn it into something not necessarily positive or negative but something that is tangible that somebody can take away and say, oh, wow, I really hurt somebody by doing that. Let me try to do better. How do we, like, how, how, how can we do that as opposed to just yelling at each other? And to that, I have no answer. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, unfortunately. Um, I think one of the things, because I come, you know, from a, a storytelling background, I always wanted to be a writer. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been really important for me in the journey of writing this book is recognizing how that element of disability representation in the media that we consume is a huge part of this fight. And, you know, recognizing where I can lend my voice to these kinds of issues in the way that's most productive, I think, is, is in that question of storytelling and really pushing for the way that we tell stories to be something that includes bodies of all shapes and sizes and all kinds of different ways of moving through the world. So I think that is really my focus. Um, having said that, however, you know, I, I hope always to grow and change as a person and to continue to fight in ways that are mobilizing and true to who I am so I am always looking for different ways to continue the fight and I think we have to take up the fight together non-disabled people can can I just don't know how the audio let's just try this um non-disabled people can fight with us we don't have to fight against each other this us and them mentality that a lot of us have kind of brought into disability justice I get where it comes from, and I get 
I understand why, and I respect why. I just don't want to be angry all the time. So for me, moving past that was a, not past, but moving around it was a personal choice. Yes, absolutely. And for me, again, I think it, it comes back to that question of privilege, right? Like for me, um, I don't move well. I don't mobilize well with anger. However, um, that is a choice that I'm making for myself, and it's not a choice that I would want to foist impose. on other people, impose yeah. on other people. Um, we all have different platforms, and we all fight this fight in different ways. And I, I think. Again, you know, it's that question of privilege and, and constantly thinking about how my privilege as a white person who is able in, in some ways to not be as angry about things um, due to the fact that I've had a lot of privilege. So, it, you know, it's, it's sort of reckoning with that. And that's a constant, a constant thing for me to think about. You know, I'm, I'm always wondering, am I doing enough? Can I be doing more? Are there other ways that I can contribute and, and lend my voice to things? Um, it's an ongoing conversation for sure. Oh, yeah. It's, ne- it's never like, I'm going to do this and then everything will be fine. It's always, it needs to be more nuanced than do this and it'll be okay. Of course it does. But let's move into the book because I love the book and I'm very proud to have gotten an advanced reader copy of the book, which I'm devouring right now. I read, I read a whole bunch every day, and I just fall in love with it more and more. You've written this book called Disfigured, which I just, I, I can't say how excited I am for anybody listening who likes disability books to read this book. I cannot wait for you to read it. Wow. Um, so you've written this book about, about disability and fairy tales and kind of everything in between all that, which I love because I've always wanted to see myself in a fairy tale. Ever since I was a little boy, I was like, I want to see... I wanted I like I saw myself in Ariel. I saw myself in like, in like the Beast. I saw myself in all and all, a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book. These characters that we've grown to love are representations of disability, but they never are said to be disabled. Right. So yes. So the book is called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. And essentially, what it is is an exploration of various fairy tales that are familiar to a Western audience, but specifically looking at them through the lens of disability. So, looking at different disabled characters in fairy tales that are well known, and then in some fairy tales that are lesser known. So, for example, you have you know the the, the Little Mermaid in both the Hans Christian Andersen version version and the Disney version. Um, you have a, a character who is disabled in the Hans Christian Andersen version. She becomes a human, but she can't speak because her, she gives she cuts her tongue out um, and gives it to the sea witch. Uh, and then she also cannot speak in the Disney version. Um, but then in the Disney version, she gets her legs at the end and she has her happy ending with her prince. In the Hans Christian Andersen version of the tale, she is told to kill the prince in order to return to her life under the sea and she can't do it so she kills herself at the end of the story and it was really interesting for me when I was starting to think of and conceive of this book in looking at various fairy tales that we know and are familiar with there is a lot of disability representation in fairy tales but the key I think is that it's not always in fact it's never really portrayed in a positive way Uh, The disabled character is almost always the villain 
or they are the protagonist and the arc of the protagonist's tale involves the eradication of the disability in some way, shape, or form. And that got me thinking about how we then use that structure of story and superimpose it on the other stories that we tell about disability in mainstream media today. Uh, And it just, it got more and more fascinating the more research that I did. And then suddenly I had material for a book and and surprise, now now it's about to be out in the world. I love the story that you tell at the beginning of the book about how this book came to be. Can you kind of give us a synopsis of that story? Because I love it so much. Sure. So in the summer of 2018, I, um, there's this writer's retreat in the States uh, off the coast of Seattle called Hedgebrook Farm. And it's this beautiful, idyllic 40-acre farm, and they have these little cottages out in the woods, and you go and you spend your day writing your manuscript, and then you meet with everybody else who's at the retreat for dinner, and you have this sort of communal get-together um, and eaten. It's lovely. It was it was so wonderful. And I was working on a novel at the time, uh, and I was having a particularly challenging day. And so I left my little cottage and went for a walk in the woods. And they have walking sticks by your cottage to help you because the paths, there were paths in the woods, but woods being what they are, there are often uneven parts to the paths and there's tree roots and stuff like that. So the walking stick can help you move around. And as I went and took my walking stick and and walked through the forest I started thinking about how I've never used a cane in my real day-to-day life Um, but using the walking stick was quite helpful uh, even more so than just you know being a a sort of inanimate guide to help me through the forest Uh, it balanced my weight in a way that was really surprising and encouraging and it was like oh I have I have more energy as I'm walking just by using this walking stick so I was thinking about that and then thinking about how you know traditionally you don't really think about disabled people going for hikes in the forest physically disabled people in particular you know because wheelchairs aren't necessarily uh the best thing to take with you when you're you know going now and going for a stroll through the trees and then I started thinking about how the forest is typically a place that we associate with fantasy and fairy tales and I was walking with my stick and I just sort of had this random thought where I was like oh well you'd never see a princess in a wheelchair in the forest and then I thought well you'd never really see a princess in a wheelchair anyway because you don't you don't see princesses in wheelchairs or princesses with guide dogs or princesses with glasses or or things like that and then I kept walking and all of a sudden all I could think about was the kind of disabilities that you do see in fairy tales and you see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs you see you know the the old witch in Hansel and Gretel who in one of the versions of the tale she comes to them on a crutch uh, at the front of her cottage to sort of deceive them into thinking that she's harmless um, I thought about you know the beast in Beauty and the Beast who is made to be ugly because it's understood that he's ugly on the inside and so his outside needs to match that interior part of him and all of a sudden it was just so obvious to me that there were all of these connections between disability and fairy tales but specifically negative connections and, and what does that then do for storytelling and the way that we perceive of 
the disabled narrative in society. So I went home and did a little bit of research and I was thinking that initially I would maybe write an essay about it and pitch it somewhere. But then I, I just started finding more and more information specifically going through the fairy tales that you know I grew up with or ones that I was just kind of exploring for the first time. It was really surprising and fascinating and wonderful and also terrible uh, to realize how many connections there were in these stories and um, the material just grew and grew and then yeah eventually it became a book as you were talking about like wanting to run away you know, wanting to go in the forest and thinking about like forests were magical places when it's so funny you said that because when I was a little boy I in my in my elementary school there was a forest behind our school and there was also a forest behind my house growing up so I would at like six or seven I, and I would think well what if I just ran away what if I just like took my wheelchair and I ran away and like my family life was great my family is amazing like nothing like that but I was like what if I just ran away and what if I just left this disabled life and what if I did it in the forest and I would always imagine like maybe there's some magical creature that would take me away from this disability that I have that makes me that makes it hard for me to have friends and hard for me to have like connection if I go in the forest I'll find that with like fairies or animals so it's funny that you bring up the connection to the forest because I, I always as a kid wanted to run away in the forest always um and I just you know that's totally not realistic because how would I do that in my wheelchair as a six or seven year old kid but it was something that I always dreamed about was like if I can get to the if I can get to the forest and run away then I won't be much like many of the protagonists in these stories I won't be a burden anymore I won't be a problem for my family anymore I can just go away and then I'll be fine and it was a it was always a thought that I had as like and it's weird that all these feelings are coming about it now but when I was like six or seven that was like really what I wanted to do I was like if I just leave they'll be fine because then me their disabled kid won't be in the way and I never told anybody that it was just something that was like in the back of my mind as a kid and it's so funny that you bring up force because that's that's what I wanted to do was to run away um <laughs> wow I got real deep there on myself there for a minute that's um, okay that's what we're here for um but so let's talk about how fairy tales played a role in how you understand your body and disability because one of the things I love about this book and I, we were talking about it off the air you you give us both a really great weaving in of like research and like here's how the stories are built here's how they show ableism here's how disability is portrayed but then you cut away to like I'm a kid trying to live my life and also be disabled and here's a story about that and here's how these fairy tales dovetail with my story so can you share more of that with us yeah so the way that this, the book is structured is as you say um, there are passages each there's nine chapters and in each chapter there are sections of research where I talk specifically about the history of fairy tales and how fairy tales kind of come to be specifically western fairy tales so a lot of the fairy tales that come out of 
European frameworks. Um, I go into the history of that and the development of those fairy tales into the fairy tales that we know and pass around today. There's a whole chapter on Disney and what Disney does to stories and, and has done to right stories. <laughs> um, and then alongside that research, I talk about my own experience as a disabled child, essentially. Um, and I guess it was it was really subtle, right? So I, I got made fun of for the way that I walked. Um, the thing that kids on the schoolyard used to say was, oh, you know, you walk like you've got a pickle stick up your ass, which when I look back on it now, there's always a moment where I try and minimize it, where I'm like, well, you know, I mean, they're just kids. They're just kids. And it's true. They were just kids. And, and I go into in the book how that element of, you know, quote unquote, being just kids is a lot to do, has a lot to do with the way that the world is structured and the way that ableism is rampant in the stories that we tell and the way that we view the world, right? So we're taught from the very young age that to be different is to be bad or to be, you know, being different is not something that you want in your life. So you need to be as quote unquote normal as possible. You need to act as normal as possible. And so for me, with someone who had, you know, a, a disability that, a physical disability, which was visible, um, but could be mild or could, you know, I could try and disguise it sometimes. So I really, I really did that. You know, I, I was in elementary school for uh, nine years. Um, and when I graduated and went to grade nine, you know, I, I just put that all behind me and, and pretended like I wasn't disabled at all. I didn't think about what it meant to move through the world in a different way. I tried to pretend that, you know, I was quote unquote normal um, and that, you know, there was nothing quote unquote wrong with me. And it wasn't until I reached my 30s and started unpacking things and connecting with a lot of people in the disability community that I I recognized how in actual fact it, it was that element of disability that shaped my life in a very particular way from when I was really young. So the book is you know, delving into those childhood memories as a way of of showing how that shaped my character and how disability from the very beginning has, you know, structured the way that I view the world and the way that I move through the world, both in in good and and negative ways. You know, it's it really has done a number on my self-esteem. And that's something that I've only really within the last five years, I would say, really kind of come to terms with and, and tried to use it instead as something that can empower me um but that's kind of i guess if you know if you're looking at the book in terms of a fairy tale in a sense that's the fairy tale that i tell about myself is that sort of origin story of myself as a disabled woman you do and i mean you do look at the book as a fairy tale because you talked earlier about like how the protagonist has to go on a on a quest and do all these things and like how you know how in the in most stories the disabled character has to go through the arc of being disabled to find to, to find their humanity and how to, to be better after and so what I love about you as a character in your own book is that like you're kind of giving I don't know I don't know I don't know if you realized this when you were writing it like you're kind of giving us a version of yourself as a character as the protagonist that's like disabled and trying to figure out that from the beginning and so I think What's really cool about you as a character in the book is that, like, people will see you could be the princess at the end, like, but the princess who is disabled. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
you know, was the big revelation for me when I was writing it was was recognizing that essentially what you have with the traditional fairy tales that we know is that disability is always eradicated in some way through magic at the end. But fairy tales never use that same magic to change the world. Instead, it's always an individual transformation. And so for me, the fairy tale for myself, I think in, in the course of writing the book, was recognizing not that I need to change, but that the world needs to change. And that you know, being disabled and having the insight that disabled people do in how to change the world and and make it more accessible for all of us is actually not a flaw but a superpower almost like it it is a very particular kind of magic that only disabled people have really to be to be frank you know our our experiences the unique ways that we move through the world and occupy the world give us a certain insight and perspective on what it means to build a a better world um, that I think is really necessary. And it's exciting because I think the world is changing, albeit slowly, but we have things like social media and, and other tools like that that are really helping to push these conversations out more into the open now. Yeah. Um, technology has been a big boon to the disability community in that way. Um, I wanted to ask you also, my, the second half of the question was, when you were a little girl watching these fairy tales, did you, as a disabled girl, did you have an idea from did you have an idea from watching these fairy tales, how your life, like, did you have an idea of how your life would be or where you'd be at a certain age, or did you have a, like a dream or like what did you, what did you want when you were watching these things growing up? Well, I was always a very romantic kid, so my obsession with fairy tales really kind of dovetailed into that right where where there's was this real sense that you grow up and you get married and you live happily ever after and and you know that was a real guiding force for my life for a long time um and I can look at it now and pick it apart and say you know oh that's so heteronormative that's so boring that's so you know so what's the word oh so basic like the kids say nowadays um it's true uh but when I look at it honestly and look at it now, I mean, that, that really was that sort of romantic happy ending because that's how most fairy tales that end happily. Most of them do end with some sort of love match, right? Like the, the beast is made beautiful at the end and he marries the beautiful beauty. Um, Snow White marries her prince at the end. Ariel you know, and Eric Ariel and Eric go off hand in hand into the sunset on their boat. Um, And it's really hard, it was really hard for me as a young romantic girl to look at those and not think that that was something that I I wanted for my life. Like I I wanted that, I wanted to meet my Prince Charming. Um, Me too. And you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that because I think society at large also pushes for that, right? That, That sort of pairing, that kind of, you know, love that comes with fireworks and all of those kinds of things these these are sort of the stories that were always told right in romantic comedies and things like that um when in actual fact the real world is a lot more complicated and 
it was interesting in the course of writing the book to recognize how much of an impact that perspective had had on my life from the time that I was very young and how that, you know, impacted my view of myself as a as a person, as a sexual being, you know, like there's a real there has been a real thread in my life of, of struggling with feeling desirable as a, a, a woman, as a disabled woman, um, because I, I walk differently. And that was something that I really minimized for a long time, right? It was like, oh, you know, your limp is not that, it's not that serious in any way. These things don't matter at all. Like nobody, nobody should care. And nobody did care. You know, I had partners who that was never, never an issue. I had partners who, you know, explicitly said like this, this, you know, does not, apart from it being a part of who you are and a part of the way that you move through the world, like, this is not a bad thing. But it's a really hard thing to shake, you know, when you're a young kid on the playground and people are laughing at you because you had your hair cut really short after an operation or because, you know, you walk differently. That There was that real sort of unspoken sense of, of you know, being, living in a body that nobody could love. Uh, and that's been really hard to let go of and and get rid of and i still struggle with it to be perfectly honest i mean so do i like just just to when you were talking you were talking about like wanting to to have romance i was like why weren't we friends like 20 years like when i was a kid because i was that was literally me as a kid to like being eight seven eight nine ten i was super queer but i didn't realize it at the time I wanted I wanted Prince Eric to like take me away from this <laughs> disabled life, um, and you know growing up on on my playground too I had similar instances of ableism where they'd make fun of my wheelchair they'd say really mean things and so like I just wanted going to going home to watch The Little Mermaid or watch Beauty and the Beast or watch like those fairy tales was a way for me to escape into a world where if I just had a little bit of magic mm-hmm. if I just had like any movie that came out in the early 90s that was about magic or like transforming yourself or something happening to you that would like take this away i was like okay i'll just wait because it'll happen to me eventually it'll happen look it happened on this in this movie it'll happen to me too yeah um one of the people that i speak with in the book uh is an artist and advocate for those with facial differences her name is penny loker and that was one of the things that she talked about a lot you know was was reading fairy tales when she was a kid and just thinking you know it's it's okay because happy endings come to everybody you know i'll grow up and get married and be a really awesome mom and i i think what that sort of intensive exposure to fairy tales and the traditional sort of fairy tale happy ending when we're children what that does is is really enforce the idea that there's one way of being in the world um and i I think the stories that we need to tell have to be different we have to be telling stories that embrace you know the different body and what it means to occupy the world in a different way to move through the world in a different way because that then makes room for the world to change right if you tell the same story over and over and over again, oh, you know, the girl meets her prince and walks down the aisle to meet him at the end, there's no question about, well, can she move down the aisle in a wheelchair? Because you're not, the wheelchair isn't in the picture, right? Whereas if we are telling stories where we think about things like wheelchairs or deaf protagonists or blind protagonists or all of these other kinds of things, there's suddenly a whole other subset of questions that you have to think about when you build that world and it's a world that we can build together 
Um, and it starts with the stories that we tell when we're kids. You know, if you tell kids from a very young age that there are so many different ways of being in the world, never mind just disability, but you know, there's often talk about how heteronormative fairy tales normally are and how radical it can be to have fairy tales where, you know, a prince falls in love with a prince or a princess falls in love with a princess or... I'd love to see that one. I haven't seen it yet. I'd love to see that one. Yeah, or, you know, um, non-gender normative protagonists. Like, all of these things need to be as common as the story of the prince meeting the princess and falling in love. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I just think that... I just think that the more disabled kids could see a version of themselves that didn't have to be transformed into the able-bodied white dude because of magic or the able-bodied white princess who like is better now because the fairy godmother said she's better now like that would be just such a game changer to see to see Ariel who what if she didn't get her legs she's still Never mind that. Even, I mean, yes, obviously, if, if she didn't get her legs. But, you know, like, she could have learned sign language. She and Eric could have communicated. When she didn't have her voice, they could have communicated through sign language. She knows how to write in the Disney film because she signs her name at the bottom of that contract that oh, she yeah, signs with right. Ursula the Sea Witch. So she could have written Eric notes. Like, there, you know, there's, there's, again, this focus on there's only one way to do things, right? There's only one way of, of walking and moving through the world. There's only one way of communicating, and that way of communicating is through speaking voice to voice. And when you think about the world in larger terms and think about, okay, what does it look like if we communicate differently? What does it look like if we tell these stories in a different way? It explodes a whole bunch of possibilities that are really, really, really important for everybody but disabled children and disabled people especially. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I just think, and I never, you know, until you said that right there, I never considered she could sign. She totally could, she totally could have. And now somebody needs to take that scene from Disney and do it over again. If they haven't already, please, somebody. Well, the one of the things that I thought was so interesting was um, a couple of months ago when they made that announcement about um, the live-action version yeah. of The Little Mermaid, um... Niall DeMarco, the deaf actor yeah. in the States, uh, did a whole tweet thread about how he wanted to be cast as Prince Eric. And that would add a whole other dimension of things, right? Because if you're going by the same story, Ariel comes up out of the water and she can't speak, but he also can't hear, right? So they're forced to communicate in a way that's different. And I thought that would make such a, a wonderful out-of-the-box fresh re-envisioning of the tale but I, I don't believe it went anywhere no, and I mean, so sad because Hollywood can't deal with that and it freaks him out a little bit but yeah Niall DeMarco is a pretty pretty man I would watch him as Prince Eric <laughs> like can somebody can somebody do this please somebody please make this happen I'm there for this I want to touch a little and I love this conversation so much but I want to touch a little bit on how all of this stuff you touch on it a little bit but how did all of all of these viewpoints of like able-bodiedness and princesses that get fixed and all this how did all this stuff affect you growing up as a young woman kind of coming into your sexuality how, did it did it affect you as a disabled young woman like did you think about all this when you were like trying to meet somebody and trying to go on dates did that did this cross your mind 
Oh, for sure. Um, a lot of it has been internalized. So I think it wasn't something I was necessarily thinking about explicitly when I was starting to date. Um, but it definitely, you know, uh, the bullying and, and, and just the way that my self-esteem sort of took a wrap as a result um, really affected the way that I saw myself as desirable or not, right? Um, it has historically been hard for me to think about myself as desirable and, and you know, to the point where my, my instinct is always to laugh off compliments because I always, on some level, I'm like, this person is just being nice. They're not actually being serious. Oh, yeah, um, and, and, you know, the, the thought that someone could actually be serious is, is just a whole it's just uncomfortable on a whole other level. And that's something that I've had to work really hard on. And, and it's really difficult. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm still afraid of dating. Um, do you, do you do it often? No, no, I don't, I don't date at all, actually. Um, and part of a huge part of that is, is fear, right? Fear around thinking, am I desirable? Like, is this a fetish? Is it, it's, it's just very hard to unpack. And I haven't, I really haven't been in this space confidence wise where I've been able to, to really look at that and, and say, you know, I think this is something I deserve. So, so then you get into, you know, all kinds of levels of psychoanalysis. And, and I think there's that thing you do where like you set yourself up in impossible situations or you set yourself up in situations where you know you'll fail. Or in my case, I have, you know, um, a real penchant, shall we say, penchant? Is that how you pronounce it? Penchant? I like, I, I like penchant, though. Penchant. <laughs> <laughs> um, for unattainable people. Um, me, like, I, I, really, I really tend to go for people who are unattainable in various kinds of ways. And I think a large part of that is, is because going for the unattainable is safe, right? Because you know that you're never going to get them and, the, and you're never going to be faced with the idea of or the reality of, you know, this person might actually like me and, and want to spend time with me. I can just sort of, like, pine, you know, in, my, in my state. Yeah, pine from afar in my state of unrequited love. Um, and I, I say all that, I lay it all out very clearly, you know, I, I can talk about it without dissolving into a mess, but it, it's definitely something that I still have to work on, like it's, and it's hard, it's real hard, Andrew, it's really difficult. If you want to devolve into a mess, this is a place in the podcast to do that, it's totally fine, but listening listen to you talk about, about, you know, going for the unattainable, that's, I do that all the time, because I, listen for the same reasons you do, because I'm like, if I go for you and if I flirt with you, you're going to reject me. And I know that already. And I know what that feels like. And I can prepare for that. Yeah. I don't know what it would do if somebody that I that I liked said, oh, I like you too. I think I would actually be like, no, 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 no. There must be, you must, yeah. it must be a joke. There must be some sort of lie there because you couldn't possibly. And I have the story already, already mapped out in my head of what to do when you reject me. I don't know what to do if you say yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that, that speaks to me on a whole level of, like, picking the unattainable, which is why looking back in my childhood and, like, back to fairy tales, wanting people like the Beast or wanting people like Eric or wanting princes like that was, like, good because those people are completely unattainable, so pine for them. Great, because you're never, that'll never, 
that's not real. So that it felt safe to pine for those characters because I'm never gonna get that. Whereas mm-hmm. the trouble for me was that I would grow. I grew up and I started pining for men in real life that were that character, and I constantly was met with the truth of that person will never want you, mm-hmm. but they also don't want to get to know you because they're afraid of your disability. Mm-hmm. So think looking back on like my on how Disney the Disneyfication of my desire as a young disabled queer kid and then seeking out people like Eric or people like, you know, the beast which sounds weird to say, but people with those attributes that I thought that I wanted and realizing, oh no, I don't want that at all. I want somebody who I want the peasant guy who isn't the prince but is super nice. Like that's the guy that I want. Mm-hmm. Who will understand that I'm disabled and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I totally agree that going for the unattainable as a disabled person feels... It just feels better because the, the rejection, we're used to it. Yeah. I know what that rejection feels like exactly and I yeah. know how to... It's the devil that you know versus the devil that you don't, Yeah, right? exactly. Um, you talked earlier about having partners who would say stuff to you like, oh, you know, your limp is just a part of who you are, like... Your CP is just part of who you are. Um, it that doesn't change who you are. How did that make you? How did how when they said stuff like that to you, and tried to make you feel better about having a limp or having having a, a gait issue or just a disability generally? How did that make you feel? Well, I think I, I should be clear in, in saying that you know that that was always a positive thing. It was meant positively, and it, it it always made me feel safe. And I am so grateful to the partners, you know, and, and the people in my life who approached me in that way. Um, I think you know there was there was and still is a lot of growing that I have to do in terms of myself and my body and and recognizing how my own ideals of you know the the perfect princess and and the sort of like when Megan and Harry got married two years ago um you know I call them that because we're we're real close um no but when they got married uh one of the things that I was fixated on was the shoes that she was wearing after they had the wedding and they got and they changed or she changed into her reception dress and they were getting into the convertible and driving away. She had these beautiful shoes that had dark blue um, on the bottom um, and they were gorgeous and they were so pretty and I can't wear shoes like that, right? Um, I'll never be able to wear shoes like that. Um, And there was just something about seeing that and seeing how we embody that sort of dainty, perfect ideal of what is beautiful as a woman. And I know that, you know, that that is my own fixation, like that that sort of world of beauty is so much larger and it's not actually all about what's dainty and pleasing and small. And the work that I have to do for myself is unpacking that and recognizing that there is beauty in a whole bunch of different ways and, and all different kinds of ways of being. Um, but I think in particular, with regard to your question, when my partners you know, would say things like that, I think the key for me is that I wasn't at a point where I could take what they were saying as the truth. So there was that deflection that happened, right? Where they would say something like that to me and I would be like, oh, you know, thank you, that's, that's nice. But inside I'd be like, I don't, I don't know if I believe you. Um, 
even knowing that they were they were speaking the truth at the same time there's this really weird sort of mental gymnastics that that goes on in my head when it comes to that question of being desirable and sex and sexuality and it's definitely uncharted um another question i had for you was about and i want to go back to the book for a second but thanks for unpacking all your feelings about beauty and disability in that little segment there but I do want to ask you about um, when you were doing research for the book, and you did you did such a great way of putting this research together. I like in reading it, I was like, "Wow, that's stuff I didn't realize." And there were, were so many things that you found that I had never considered before. So I was in, I was enthralled right away. And you know, usually when you read research in a in a text, it can be really dry. This was not that. It, this was very like, "Wow, this is." stuff that we need to be reading about but when you were doing research and putting it together um was there anything about what you found that surprised you in the research around disability i wouldn't say there was anything in particular that surprised me um but i think the the method of research and just doing the research in and of itself was itself surprising. Um, I did, so I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing philosophy and then a master's degree in creative writing. And what that means is that um, I managed to go through university without ever actually having to go to the university library all that much. Um, I think when I was in my undergrad, I went to the university library maybe four times in total, one of which was probably to use the bathroom, not going to lie. And so I've always kind of had this idea in my head of myself as being someone who's not savvy at research or who can't do research because I've associated the word research with, you know, combing through dusty shelves and looking at microfiche and and hard hitting journalism. Yeah. So when I embarked on this book, there was definitely a real element of fear in thinking about how to pull it together. Um, But what I conveniently forgot in the course of all of that was that you know the internet is the world's library and brings a lot of really fantastic resources specifically uh, real-time resources if that makes sense you know where I could I could glean things from Twitter conversations or I could use Twitter conversations to then push me towards another rabbit hole that I could explore and it was fascinating it was so much fun uh, just it really was a series of rabbit holes one after the other and I just sort of followed one as far as I could go and actually one of the things and I've talked about this um, in other interviews one of the things that was really great for me with writing this book is that I've always sort of thought of myself first and foremost as a fiction writer but there always comes a time in writing fiction where I'm like I have problem with plot and you know what happens now I have no idea um, and that happened with this book, with the nonfiction book. But whenever I ran into a problem of not understanding or not knowing where to go next, I would just go back to the research. So I would e- start reading some internet articles again, and those would inevitably lead me to other internet articles, which would lead me to something else that would be really fascinating. And so I would jot down notes for that. It was a really wonderful experience. Um, and it connected me to so many people uh, who, you know, had interests in both fairy tales and disability and were disabled themselves, and so many people in the disability rights movement. Uh, it brought me to a much wider community, and I'm very, very grateful 
for all of that, you know, both for the experience itself, which was lovely, and then also for the connections and, and the life that the experience engendered, because I'm, I'm a different person now than I was a year ago, even when I was writing the book, and having the book done now, and, and you know, having the realizations for myself that I made in the course of writing the book have definitely contributed to that. That's, and I, I love how in reading the book, like, you, the research is not all dusty shelf, hard-hitting research. There is a lot of Twitter talk. There's a lot of, like, there's, like, there's, like, discussions of how the social media movement has changed disability politics and how, like, there's, there's so much of how our real world could be considered, like, magic back then. And I just, I love how everything you said, I, I'm reading the book kind of digitally right now and I keep going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, like that, wow, I never considered that. So, like, it really, it's just a whole new way of looking at disability and bringing, I think, for those of us who wanted to see ourselves in a fairy tale, in now in a way, we do, because you've shown that we were there the whole time, but nobody knew how to place us. Um, so I think that, I think when people read it, it's gonna, it's gonna really make you sit and think, I never considered breakdowns this way before, and then when you do, it like, I remember reading it, and that's why, like, you'll see on my Twitter a few times when I was reading it, I was like, oh my god, I have to comment on how much I love this part because of it, like, it's just so, it made me stop and go, wow, I never considered this before in terms of disability representation in fairy tales. And, you know, the story that I told earlier about going in the forest and wanting to run away, like, that's why I loved getting, reading this book because I was like, wow, this is connecting with that kid that really wanted that. And I finally feel like there's a piece of me that I can see in fairy tales now. So I, I hope that for anybody else who reads the book, they will see themselves as a young disabled kid in this book somewhere because it's it's unlike anything I've read before. Thank you so much for saying that. That's so kind. It's definitely the book um, that I think would have helped me a lot if I had read it when I was younger, um, you know, and was trying to find a place for myself in the world uh, and pretending for a long period of my life, which is what I did, you know, pretending that I had a particular place in the able-bodied world um, to have read something like this that that encouraged me to see the world a little bit differently would have had a huge effect, I think. But it's okay because I have it now, you know, it's, it's, and it, hopefully it will do the same for other disabled kids out there and disabled adults, you know. I think it will, I think, I hope that disabled, that parents of disabled kids also get the book and reconsider, like, when they go to read Ariel to their, or, you know, Ariel to their kids or to Beauty and the Beast or they go to watch those movies. Well, they may not change the whole story. They may they may teach their kids different lessons about disability now that they've read it. So I hope that that's what happens. Um, going going into a kind of a side question, if you were to think of a Disney princess for you to be, who would you be, and why? Uh, well, obviously, when I was younger, the answer to that question would have been Ariel. Um, my 
sister and I, um, I have two sisters, but the one closest in age to me, um, she and I used to swim for hours in our backyard pool and we'd pretend to be Ariel, you know, that part where she splashes up on the rock and she sings the end of part of your world. We would do that. We would jump up to the side of the pool and kick our legs and splash. Um, so it was definitely Ariel. Um, but you know, as an adult, I can look back on that and say that there are some questionable things about the way that Ariel approaches the world. I mean, she's 16 years old and she decides to leave her home and her family and all she's ever known for some guy who has a pretty face who she rescues from a shipwreck. And I'm sorry, he's very boring. Eric is probably the most boring Disney prince, followed closely by Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty. Um, <laughs> he, he just has no personality. Um, so not, yeah, I, w I don't think I would identify with Ariel as much now. Um, probably more, ideally, more Merida in Brave, uh, despite the fact that I am not as physically capable as Merida, nor do I have red hair, although I do have curly hair, curly brown hair. Um, you could dye it red. I could dye it red, yes, yes. And, you know, I lived in Scotland for a time, so I, I definitely have, like, a, a part of my heart that's still on Scotland's shores. So, yes, we'll go with Merida as the choice of 2020. My Disney princess pick when I was a kid is Ariel. Um, for many of the same reasons. Like, oh. And it's funny, thinking back on those scenes of when she's transforming, like, yeah subconsciously I think as a disabled kid I was like well what if, why can't I have that where's my conch shell with this where's my like conch shell with the spell in it that will make me able for a day or like you know even the beast of like where's my spell that will show me that I'm not beastly so like but and now 35 year old Andrew would want I think I'd want to be Belle because mm -hmm. but Belle like before the beast in her little provincial town just doing whatever like that, <laughs> that's kind of me and my heart. I, I I'm not a. I used to think I wanted to be a big city kid, and now I'm just like, well, I, I'm good in my little small yeah. town. Little small town with a whole bunch of books to read. Yeah, it's really not a bad life. That's really all I want. Um, I want to ask though about about fairy tales today, and so if we were to take all the stuff we talked about and how ableism affects, you know, disabled kids so much, and if we if you were to create a disabled fairy tale for the ages that, that showed a disabled protagonist who was disabled and not not trying to find magical ways to not become disabled, how, how do you think that would look today? Like, what, what story would you want to tell? I don't know if I'd want to tell a particular story, um, as in, like, one of the stories, you know, I, I'm not so interested in revisioning the stories that we have, although I, I, I do think that that's important. Um, I think what's most important, regardless of how the story turns out, is, is that you have a disabled protagonist where their disability structures the plot in some way that it, it allows them to see the world differently, and that's how things change. Um, Sci-fi shows tend to be 
much better at this. Um, and I don't know if it's it's just that, you know, that sort of cultural hold that sci-fi shows have had on us for a, a while like in comparison to fairy tales. But if you look at something like Star Trek, right, there's this great episode in Deep Space Nine where they have a character who uses a wheelchair because she comes from a planet that has I'm a different gravity. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So spoiler alert for everybody who doesn't watch DS9, sorry. Um, <laughs> this character uses a wheelchair because she's used to a different gravity on her home planet and something happens over the course of the episode and there's a disaster um, and the, the gravity on the ship is, is or the gravity on the station is, is screwed with and the only person that can move around and do things in this altered gravity state is this person who you know had what was considered a disability at the beginning of the show because she had to move through the world in a different way but all of a sudden her insight and the way that she moves becomes extraordinarily valuable to the episode by the end and I think essentially that's what I want in you know the new fairy tales that we tell and the new stories that we tell about disability it's not just enough to have you know a princess in a wheelchair although obviously the representation is great but I want a princess in a wheelchair where you know the fact that she's in a wheelchair becomes pivotal to the plot in some really important way in you know transforming the world it's not about transforming her so that she can walk. It's about transforming the world that's around her so that they all become more aware and you know better people as a result of recognizing that we're all in this together and the only way that we're going to change and transform the world, the real sort of magic that we're all looking for is by recognizing that you, know, you, you need to make that sort of systemic change. I think also just listening to to you tell that story I, I would love to first of all I love what a nerd you are and I love how you brought up DS9 and I now I want to sit and talk with you about Star Trek for like a whole another hour um but I'm also curious as to well I just said as to like I knew what I was gonna say and I forgot um I'm what was I gonna ask you I forget I don't know it was really profound and now I lost it um Star Trek sci-fi oh yeah that, I was gonna do, would you like to see, I don't want to see just a prince or princess or a non-binary royal in a, in a wheelchair. I want to see them in a power chair. Something that I tweeted about in when I first started reading your book was, wow, I, I really want to see a princess in a power chair. Because there are, people have written like kids books with people in a wheelchair, but usually it's a manual chair. So I feel like to see a, to see a princess in a power chair is a whole different thing because it means that they're not as able as somebody who can push themselves and so I think to show that you can still be you can still be a prince or a quote prince or princess in a power chair even if you can't move your fingers you can still like get around I think that would be a huge change for kids to see that I mean I was when I was like six or seven I would have loved to have seen a prince in a power chair um, and anybody wants to write that kid's book, let me know. <laughs> but I just think I just think your book has opened up conversations for parents to talk to their kids about like disability in a way that they may not have considered for kids for adults who were kids back in like the nine eighties and nineties and all this was when the Disneyfication was happening to look at these characters differently now and be like, What about this? What about this? Mm-hmm. Like it really makes me look at fairy tales differently now and I'm really excited to see how it's received 
Thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot. I'm really grateful. It's, I mean, I'm just excited for it. I'm also excited because um, I, on upon this recording in about two weeks, I will be at your launch talking to you about all these things at your launch. So I'm really excited to, to do that with you, and I'm really honored that you asked me to like be a part of that because I didn't realize until I started reading this book how how important it was to me, and I'm, I'm halfway through reading it. And every time I read it, I literally have to stop. I have to take an hour and be like, wow, that was a lot. Of, that was a lot of stuff. But I feel differently about stuff now. And I think also because you're a disabled author and you're someone who's gone through the stuff you're writing about, it makes it feel that much more important to read your work. And so I think that when people read this book, who are disabled especially, they're going to feel like wow somebody just somebody just iterated exactly how I felt when I was six like how do like how do I how do I how do I feel about that it feels great because someone else went through that too and so I think I I would love to see this book be not only an academic work but turned into like maybe a kid's book about mm. fairy tales like there's so much you can do with that and I'm excited just to see where that goes but I want to let you promote yourself and so when does the book come out how can people get it and how can they get a hold of you so the book uh, is published by Coach House Books in Toronto and it will be available for sale as of February 4th which is a few short weeks away um, you can get in touch with me I'm on Twitter at Amanda LaDuke um, I do also have a website, um, but it's in the process of being reworked right now. And I just got a notification today that there are weird pictures of people in bikinis showing up on my website. Um, oh. And I'm not quite sure why that's happening. So please rest assured if you're listening to this that there will be a new website launching at around the time the book comes out. So at the beginning of February. Um, and I'm always, almost always on Twitter, so that, that is a really easy way to just drop a line and say hello, and I hope uh, if you find yourself reading the book that you enjoy it. And um, yeah, I'm just, I really, I want people to know, and disabled people especially, to know that they're not alone. And I hope that that book can contribute to that conversation and contribute to that community in some way. Fantastic. Amanda LaDuke, we're going to go off the air and chat like the friends we are, maybe about DS9 and other nerdy things. Um, but this was a great conversation. Thank you for coming into my studio, which is basically my bedroom. So thanks for doing that with me. Um, and for thank you for writing such an important work. And I, I will, not, will never not champion how great it is. So thank you for coming in today. Thank you very much, Andrew. It was a pleasure to be here. All right, and uh, I'm going to hit the off button now and hope that the recording went well. So thank you for being here, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, friends, there you have it. There's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I want to thank you, of course, for coming back each week so we can shine a bright light on these issues together. And I love just being a resource for you and being able to talk about this stuff so thank you for thank you for sticking with us for all this time it means a lot if you want to follow the show on twitter you can follow us at disaftdarkpod 
on Twitter. That's where we do a lot of polls about what kind of shows you want me to produce and what kind of things you want to hear on this program. And I'd love to hear from you on that Twitter account what sort of things you want the show to be about. So you can follow us there. If you want to follow my work specifically, you can follow me on Twitter at A-N-D-R-W-G-R-Z-A. So that's A-N-D-R-W-G-R-Z-A on Twitter. That's my own personal account. And you can follow my website, www.andrewgerza.com, where you can see some of my work, some of my past writings, and where you can book me to bring Disability After Dark and my work to your next event. So if you want to shine a bright light on all things disability, sexuality, and everything in between at your event, go to andrewgerzo.com and you can hire me there. If you want to reach out to me via email about the show, if you want to be a guest, if you want to submit a minisode, if you have a show idea, if you want to do all that with me, make sure you hit us up at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Alright friends, well that's the show and we'll be back next week to shine a bright light on more things. Disability, sexuality, and of course, everything else in between. I'm your host, Andrew Gerza. Have a good one. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuji. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be distributed or used without express permission. Copyright 2020.